You didn't see the man come flying out of the sky from the clouds. It was him. You're listening to Superman or Else, and this is episode number one from Out the Green Dawn. Hello and welcome to Superman or Else, the podcast where I'm reading post-crisis Superman comics for the first time. I mean, kinda. That doesn't make sense. Well, we'll get to that. I'm your host. My name is Steven, and I want to thank you for joining me right here and checking out this first episode in what I hope to be a very long-running show. So let me first address the claim I made just a moment ago. You know, I'm reading post-crisis Superman comics for the first time. That, yeah, that's not true. Not at all. But here's the thing. While I have been reading Superman comics off and on since 1986, which is when the post-crisis Superman comics began, it's only as I kind of look back at everything that's been published since. And really, when I try to participate in online conversations, like over at the Twitters, in which certain post-crisis Superman stories are Part of the conversation, I guess, uh, it's it's that at that point that I realized that I really haven't read a lot of post-crisis Superman, and I would like to rectify that, hence this here podcast. But really, for me to say the podcast where I'm reading most of the post-crisis Superman comics for the first time, except I've read some of them already, just not a lot of them, but... I figured it was time to really get in there and start reading that. uh, Yeah, that doesn't have the same kind of punch as I'm reading post-crisis Superman comics for the first time. Doesn't really roll off the tongue, does it? It's all about how you market yourself, folks, right? Anyway, as I said, post-crisis Superman on and off. I started with the John Byrne run. And frankly, the only reason I was reading those was because my older brother was getting them at the time that they were coming out back then in 1986, and he would let me read his comics. And at some point during the John Byrne run, he stopped buying them. And so I stopped reading them. And then I didn't get back into Superman until the death of Superman. And I read a bit of Superman after that. Not a lot. I kind of dove back in during Infinite Crisis And I've read a few of the new ones here and there, but really that's about it. When it comes to the triangle era, which we'll get to eventually, that is there. Well, there's just a big chunk of that that I've, I've never read panic in the sky, never read Uh, blue and red electric Superman. Haven't read. I just, I just have not read a lot of that stuff. So that's what we're going to do here with Superman or else. And we're going to start off in this first episode with the miniseries that kicked the whole thing off, which was Man of Steel number one. That issue hit the stands on July 10th, 1986, and it had a cover price of just 75 cents. It was written and penciled by John Byrne, inked by Dick Giordano, letters by John Costanza, and the colorist was Thomas Ziuko. So here's how it's going to work. First, I'm going to give you a synopsis of the issue, which... In this case, for this episode and this issue, I got that off of Mike's Amazing World of Comics over at mikesamazingworld.com. And then following the synopsis, I'm going to go through the issue 
kind of page by page and go into a little bit more detail and give you my thoughts about anything that might stick out at me as I'm looking it back over. I will also, on occasion, try and drop some knowledge right on top of you in regard to characters and junk like that. But as far as the amount of knowledge, that's really going to depend on how I feel at the time, you know, putting an episode together, how much research I want to do. I'm, I'm not a big research guy, so we'll just see. I also tend to do a bit of tangenting now and again. That just means that if a thought pops into my head as I'm talking about a certain scene or a character or whatever, then sometimes I'll just tangent away and talk about that for 10 minutes. And so, yeah, I just want you to prepare mentally, prepare yourself up in your headspace for stuff like that. My mind is a raging torrent flooded with rivulets of thought cascading into a waterfall of creative alternatives. And that's my preamble, folks. You're not going to get a lot of preamble in these episodes. Typically, I'm just going to jump right into the issue and we'll be off to the races. But I felt that I should explain just a couple of quick things there right at the top. But we're done. So how about we get into the issue? I just don't think I can move through life knowing that a guy named Steven did this to me. The planet Krypton has been plagued by a green death, which has poisoned millions. Scientist Jor-El has discovered that a chain reaction inside the planet's core is responsible, and the pressure in the core will soon lead to a catastrophic explosion. Unable to save himself or his people, Jor-El is able to attach a rocket to the birthing matrix of his unborn son, Kal-El. Just before the planet is destroyed, Zor-El sends his son to Earth. 18 years later, Clark Kent of Smallville High is a football hero. After winning the final game of the season, his father, Jonathan Kent, takes him to an abandoned field and shows him the rocket that brought him to Earth. Jonathan explains that he and Martha found the ship and the baby inside soon after it had crash-landed. Clark learns for the first time that he is not the natural son of the Kents. I'm adopted? He also decides that he should use his powers for the good of the world and prepares to leave Smallville. Seven years later, Clark returns to Smallville and tells his parents about a recent incident in Metropolis. Though he has been secretly using his powers to prevent disasters and help people for several years, no one has seen him. However, when a NASA space plane was involved in a mid-air collision, Clark was forced to act publicly to save the plane and everyone on board, including reporter Lois Lane. After landing the plane, Clark was mobbed and retreated to Smallville for his parents' counsel. The Kents help Clark construct a costumed identity so that he can act publicly. As Clark Kent, he begins wearing glasses, slicking his hair back, and stooping to alter his appearance. Clark puts on the new costume and takes the name Superman. All right, so we're going to start with the cover. And this particular issue is not only known as the issue that kicks off the post-crisis Superman titles, it also sports two different covers. And one of them is a variant cover that was the first variant cover made with the intention of selling more copies of the book. 
I'll, I'll explain. Great. I'll get comfortable. So variant covers up to this point were not unknown. However, variant covers on comics up until this point were not marketing gimmicks. They weren't put on books in order to try and sell more copies. There was actually a more logical reason for many of the variant covers that you would find up to this point. For example, there was a point back in the the, the 60s or 70s, I, I don't remember when, but Marvel wanted to increase the cover price on their comics, and they really weren't sure how their readers were going to react to that. So they picked a small section of the United States as a test market, and they released issues within that area that had a different price on the cover that, that was, I think, a nickel more than the comics that went out to the rest of the country. And so those comics that were sold in that area of the United States at that time with a different price on the cover, that's considered a variant cover. Another example, I'll, I'll, I'll use Marvel again, but DC would do this as well. Y'all as a comic book reader should be aware that there was a time in which comic books were distributed in two ways. The direct market, which means basically comic book stores, and then the newsstand. So that would be like a magazine stand or a spinner rack and a 7-Eleven or literally the newsstand like on the streets of New York where you see a booth basically that's set up on the street that has magazines and comics and, and newspapers. Get on with it! Well, these retail outlets that would purchase these books for the newsstand, the one advantage that they had over the direct market is that any books that sat on the shelf for a certain amount of time or sat on the racks or sat on the stands for a certain amount of time that didn't sell, these 7-Elevens or grocery stores or whatever could return those comics back to Marvel for or DC or whoever and get some of the money back that they spent purchasing these books. But they'd have to rip the cover off before they sent it back. Well, apparently some unscrupulous retail outlets, grocery stores, newsstands or whatnot, or you know maybe they were working with local comic book stores. But anyway, they were returning direct market books, which are not returnable. And so the, the, the big two started producing books with something different on the cover for the newsstand edition versus the direct market edition. For, for Marvel, for example, they put a black diamond in the price box for either the newsstand or the direct market. I don't remember. But what I'm trying to get to here is that for the Man of Steel issue number one, July 10th, 1986, they purposely produced two different covers. I don't remember what the ratio was. I feel like it was 50-50. And that was to entice people to pick up two issues, you know, two copies of issue number one, because then they would get both covers. I love comic books. And one cover is a close-up of Superman opening up his shirt and revealing the Superman costume underneath. We've all seen that, like in the the Richard Donner Superman movie or on TV shows and whatnot. And then the other cover was designed in a certain format or template, however you want to say it, so that it matched the design of all six issues of The Man of Steel, which basically had a, 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 a character from the book 
featured on the cover, the the full character from head to toe. And then they they would be located on one side of the the cover, and then on the other side would be kind of something that that happened within the book. And in this case, we have Clark Kent standing there opening his shirt to reveal his Superman logo underneath. And on the other side of the cover, we have the planet Krypton exploding with the little rocket ship flying away from it. All right, so let's get into the book itself. This issue is separated into various chapters or sections or whatever you want to call it. And it starts out with the prologue, which is set on Krypton in the past. We meet Jor-El, who has returned from some kind of journey. He, he, he returns back to wherever it is he lives with Lara. And there's a couple of robots there. One is named Kellex and the others named Kellor. They refer to Jor-El as my lord and master and all that stuff. So they're very subservient to Jor-El. And he immediately asks Kellex, where is the child? And Kellex tells him that he followed his instructions from earlier and he placed the matrix in the third level laboratory. And then he calls him Sire. And Jor-El tells him, when the Lady Lara calls, please guide her to me. And so he goes into this laboratory and there's this big black ball on a stand. And inside is the, well, it's his son, his unborn son. And so Krypton at this point has developed into a society that is very advanced compared to even where we are on Earth now. But they're very wholly dependent Upon their technology, they have evolved into a race of people that are practically emotionless. And uh, when a man and woman are married, it's 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 an arranged thing. And if they want to have children, it's not you know they don't they don't put on some Barry White and get into the bedroom and do a little something something between the sheets. They just it's very clinical. The the man provides his part and the woman provides her part and they goes into a gestation matrix and the child is is gestated outside of the womb and so that's where little Kalel is at this point he is unborn he's you know he's a fetus he's a developing fetus inside of a this gestation matrix and Jorel is is kind of looking at him and then Laura shows up and she's just in a panic and she sees the matrix there and she's, oh my gosh, it's true. You really did it. You sent one of our servants to remove the matrix from the gestation chambers. And he's basically like, yeah, I did. It's, I am entitled to do so. I'm the child's father by Kryptonian law. I have the right to do that. And she reminds him that that's a law that hasn't been invoked in centuries. And she wants to know what the frick is going on, basically. and. She even, she's basically saying that by doing this, by taking the matrix from the gestation chambers, that she, that, that Jor-El is endangering their son. And Jor-El's like, no, I'm not. I'm actually saving him. And so this is when we learn that there is this plague going on all across Krypton that is making the Kryptonians sick and killing them. Lara brings this up. In kind of a, you know, oh, well, if you're talking about the plague, good Lord, settle down. The, our f- greatest physicians are working on a cure right now, you know, acting like he is basically just blowing this out of proportion, which 
you know, feels kind of feels kind of familiar. I feel like something happened on Earth not that long ago, a sickness that killed a lot of people and a great big chunk of our population just dismissed it. Ah, you're making too big of a deal out of it. So that that feels very familiar. But Jor-El explains to her that the the plague, the green death is it's not what everybody thinks it is and it's just the tip of the iceberg. Basically, he He's just returned from a journey that has taken him all over Krypton. He has had this suspicion about what's happening to the planet. He's been working on it for months, and he went out to do some investigating, and he found that his suspicions were true. He tells her that, I'll just read it straight from the book, a chain reaction within the core of Krypton has caused vast pressures to build within the planet's crust. Those unnatural pressures are fusing the native elements into a new metal, a radioactive metal. It is that radiation that is killing us. And if that were not enough, the same pressures as it builds and builds within our world will soon be too much for the rocky mantle to contain. Within a day, perhaps within as little as an hour, Krypton will explode. She's very unbelieving there there has to be something we can do it, it, it's it's not it's not that final you know she reminds them that we as kryptonians are the masters of this planet for thousands of years it does not rain but that we permit it and now you say that the world will destroy us and he's like yeah and it's probably because of all this crap that we've been doing right they have tried to shape this planet into what they feel the planet should be. They've tried to control Mother Nature, basically. And it's not nice to mess with Mother Nature because, you know, what they say, F around and find out. That's, that's what's happening here. The Kryptonians have F'd around for a thousand years and now they're finding out what's going to happen. And Krypton, you know, as I said, it's, it's gotten to this point, you know, their, their civilization is very, if you're a fan of Star Trek, it's very Vulcan. You know, Jor-El tells her that we have filled every nook and cranny, conquered and harnessed every force of nature, and in the end, what have we achieved? Sterility, a cold and heartless society stripped of all human feeling, all human passion and life. And Laura is just freaking out, and she says that he's speaking obscenities, basically, and he's just kind of, you know, whatever. We've we brought this upon ourselves. We have denied ourselves with living a full life, and now we're going to pay for it. And he explains to her that while he can't do anything to save the planet, he can save their son. He explains that the, the gestation matrix that little baby Kal-El has been developing in has shielded him from the radiation. So Kal-El is not gonna get the radiation sickness that everybody is getting. And he also explains that the matrix is built in such a fashion that it will even survive a journey through hyperspace. And so he has built a, a hyper light drive that he is, he's, he's got his robot servants right now attaching it to the matrix. And he's gonna send little baby Kal-El into space. And in fact, he has done some research and he has found this planet that he says is not unlike the Krypton 
of millennia past, and it's a planet that its inhabitants call Earth. And he even shows her a bit of footage or whatever. I don't know if he's using some kind of super powerful telescope or if he is able to hack into their to to the Earth's television feed or anything, but he shows her a field. He says it's in a nation called America in a subsection called Kansas. And you see a couple of farmers out there in the field, and one of them is holding a pitchfork that he's got a bunch of hay that he has scooped up with the pitchfork, and he's not wearing a shirt, and frickin' Laura almost faints. She screams out, ah, when she sees this and refers to this dude as a savage, a barbarian who bears his naked flesh, his hairy flesh. He touches unprocessed soil. What kind of hell do you seek to send our child into? (laughs) Which is really kind of funny. And he explains to her that Earth is actually going to be a heaven for their child because it orbits a yellow sun. And Kal-El exposed to the radiation of that star, his Kryptonian cells will become living solar batteries, making him grow ever more powerful. And in time, he will become the supreme being on that planet, almost a god. And immediately, Laura's like, all right, so he's going to rule them, right? He's going to be like their leader, and he's going to force them to make Earth like Krypton. And Jor-El's like, eh, maybe, I don't know, but let's just, let's just send him there anyway and save his life. And before she can really argue, the eruptions begin. The planet's about ready to explode. The robots have just finished attaching the matrix to this hyperlight drive. And so he launches his son out into space and we get the kind of the, a famous shot. We've seen it represented across all forms of media. And it's the, the little rocket ship zooming away as the planet explodes behind it. And we actually have one panel here. If you're not really paying attention, you'd miss it. But there is a, uh, you know, you're seeing debris, bits of the planet flying about the rocket. But there's one particular piece that seems to attach itself to the side of the rocket. And that's how the prologue ends. And I really quite enjoyed John Burns' interpretation, I guess, of Krypton, the, what, what he has defined Krypton as. I'm not a big fan of, uh, you know, basically... Jorel is the only sane person, even in his own family. You know, his wife is a, uh, uh, a, a raving madwoman, basically, who is so stuck in tradition that she just doesn't even want to believe that anything different is possible. She's very, she's portrayed as kind of a small-minded person, which I guess pretty much everybody on Krypton was when it came to new ideas. But of course, in this day and age, with everything that um, we've been seeing around us, you know, stuff that's been going on for decades and hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of years, but how, you know, a guy like me can grow up most of his life and not even notice that it's happening because that's the way our society was created. But we have to have in this book, the, 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 the woman be the inferior ultimately, because she's the small minded, crazy woman who does, who just isn't going to believe that something bad is going to happen. And, you know, the, the hairy barbarian and touching his hands to the unprocessed soil and you are a barbarian yelling at Jor-El for speaking obscenities, for daring to speak out against the way Kryptonian society was built. And, 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 you know, 
I'm not trying to say that John Byrne specifically sat down and said, all right, what can I do to make a woman look bad in this book? It's just, that's just the way men have been taught since the dawn of time. But I think more and more men are waking up to the fact that that's not true. Anyway, we jump forward 18 years. We're now in Smallville, Kansas. Somebody Chapter one of this issue, and it's called The Secret. Have you heard about it? This is The Secret. Clark is playing football. John Byrne has made Clark into a football star, basically a, a high school football star, which even though this is the real, really, this is the first origin story of Superman that I ever read. This was my introduction to Superman's origin back in 1986. I feel like everything that has, you know, every origin story that has been told since, whether it's been in the movies, um, and I, probably specifically the movies, uh, animation, TV, whatnot, teenage Clark Kent is a very unassuming boy. You know, he has these superpowers, but he's not using them to better himself. You know, he's not using them really to win the football game and stuff like that. So seeing him as a football star that people are throwing up on their shoulders after he wins the game and yelling his name and cheering, and that, that just feels odd to me, re reading it again now. But Jonathan's on the sidelines and he's watching this and the, the coach tells Jonathan that, that boy of yours is the best. He's going to make millions as a pro. Millions! Jonathan, however, he's not too happy. He doesn't like seeing Clark using his, his powers to make himself better than others. And he even points out to the coach that he, you know, there's teammates on the bench that are, that are watching Clark win this game pretty much by himself, and they don't look happy. And when he points that out to the coach, the coach is like, ah, they're just jealous. You know, and, uh, you know, because the coach is just happy that they're winning. He doesn't care how it happens because football is the most important thing in many Americans' lives, which is, I'm not going to judge. Anyway, Clark is getting ready to go have a soda with Alana Lang after the game, but his dad says, Not nah, you, you're coming with me. I'm taking you home. And on the ride home, Clark asks his dad, Are you mad at me? And, Jonathan tells him, eh, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. And Clark doesn't understand. He said, well, how can you be disappointed? I just won the last game of the season and I pretty much did it by myself. And Jonathan's like, yeah, I know. And that's what we need to talk about. And then that's when he takes him out to this field, uh, a field that he says that he has left to lie fallow or lay fallow. Uh, for the last 18 years, he has, he's, he's put the nastiest barbed wire fence he could find around it. He's put up no trespassing signs and he wants to keep people out of this field. And Clark even mentions, well, this is the field you told me never to play in when I was a little kid. And Jonathan takes him to uh, a spot in the field where there are basically two big doors or a, or a big, basically a big slab of wood in the, in the middle of the field. And he tells Clark to, to lift it up. Says with your strength, you're more than strong enough now. You should be able to do it. And so he lifts up this big square piece of wood that's that's even bigger than than your typical garage door. And we find a, a big hole underneath it. And inside the hole is the rocket. And that's when Jonathan tells Clark that this is where they found him. And Clark's like, found me? You mean I'm adopted? I'm not adopted. I'm asking mom. You know, which is really kind of funny. 
Because imagine you're 18 years old. You're feeling pretty good about yourself. You just won the football game. Everybody loves you. And your dad takes you out into a field where there's a freaking rocket ship in a crater and says, yeah, this is where we found you. This is where you came from. And you don't think to yourself, oh, hold on, I was in a freaking rocket ship as a baby? No, his his thought is I was adopted. That's That's what he's dwelling on, which is kind of funny. But Jonathan tells him the story of how 18 years ago they saw something fall out of the sky and they, you know, in the middle of the night and they, they drove out to where they saw it land and they, they found the rocket and inside the rocket is, is baby Clark. Now I should point out here, it's very important to note that in John Burns retelling of Superman's origin, you know, I talked about how he was in this birthing matrix, this gestation matrix. He is, he was not born. Basically, he 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 was born on Earth rather than on Krypton. In in every story that's been told before this point, and frankly, there's origin stories that have been told after this point. Many of them, Kal El is a, is a baby. Jor El takes his infant son and places it in a rocket and sends it to Earth. But in this case, he sends his unborn, gestating fetus of a son. And it is then born on Earth, and it the 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 child happens to be born ultimately when they approach the rocket, and and uh, Jonathan puts his hands on the matrix. That's when the matrix opens up, and that is Clark being born into the world. So that was done on purpose, of course. They wanted John. Well, I don't know if it was what John Byrne wanted or if it was what DC wanted. But ultimately, the idea here is that this gives Superman more of a connection with Earth. Yeah, he's from Krypton, he's an alien, but he was born on Earth and raised by a couple of good citizens in the state of Kansas. But one of the funny things about this scene is that while Jonathan does mention that, for all they know, this could be a Martian. You know, this little baby could be a Martian. and but. Martha tells him that he's being ridiculous. Look at this child. It's obviously a human. And so they, they kind of assume their, their assumption here at this point, and this is also an important note, their assumption is that this, uh, this rocket didn't come from outer space. It's maybe Russian, that the, the Russians sent a baby into space, basically, because Jonathan mentions, you know, well, they've been sending dogs and monkeys and stuff up there, so I guess, and Martha's just horrified that that anybody would send a, a baby up into space and that they're going to take this baby home and they're going to raise this child as their own. And if the Russians come looking for them, well, they're going to get Martha's foot in their butt is what's going to happen here is basically, basically what she's saying. And then Jonathan recounts certain moments in Clark's life to Clark about how well, first he explains that literally right after they brought baby Clark home from the crash site, they that Kansas got hit by a, a a massive blizzard that kept them trapped in their home. Well, actually, they don't say that. They said they didn't get back into Smallville for five months. Now, I grew up in Kansas. I've lived all my life in Kansas. We had some pretty bad winters as a child. And granted, I did live in town, but 
I don't recall ever having the kind of snowstorm that farmers, people who lived in, in, in any of the rural areas around here, couldn't get into town for five months. Now, again, he doesn't say they were trapped there. He just says it was the worst storm of the century and we didn't get back into Smallville for five months. I don't know. But I mean, John Byrne is from Canada and uh, I can see that happening in Canada, maybe up north, but not in the part of Kansas where I'm from anyways, which is Eastern Kansas. Most of Kansas that you see portrayed in media is going to be Western Kansas where it's very flat. Anyway, because they were unable to get into Smallville for five months, by the time they did, they just told people that Martha had been pregnant. They just weren't telling anybody. And she had the baby at home during the blizzard. And everybody was like, all right, cool. Because he mentions after two miscarriages and one stillbirth, our friends were just thrilled as could be to meet little Clark Kent. And then this is where he starts to recount moments from Clark's life growing up to Clark, which was kind of silly, but Clark even points it out to him at one point because he's just basically pointing out how we brought you home and for a number of years, you were just a perfect little boy and we didn't have any reason to suspect that you had superpowers. but. When Clark was eight, Jonathan was out in the truck going to town or coming back from town, and Clark was cutting through old man McCullough's pasture on the way to or from school, and McCullough's prize bull charges Clark and tramples him in the field. And, of course, Jonathan freaks out, runs across the field, expecting to find, at best, a broken and bloody little boy still alive, but at worst, of course, his son dead in this pasture, but he finds him just perfectly fine. His clothes are torn, but no worse for the wear. And he talks about how other powers started to manifest themselves. You know, he, they show him, you know, maybe a couple of years later, lifting up the truck to get a ball from underneath his x-ray vision came into play when he was a teenager and the same when he learned that he could fly, which was because he was out running around with his dog. He was a mean dog. Old Rusty, as Jonathan calls him. And for some reason, he's running next to, well, it's just a ditch. He's not like on the side of a cliff or anything. He's just running alongside a ditch that maybe has a, a, a foot, a two foot drop maybe. And the dog jumps on him because he's so happy to see Clark and he knocks Clark into the ditch. But instead of falling into the ditch, he just floats there. And that's when he learns he can fly. And then, of course, it's at this point that Clark's like, why are you telling me all this, Pa? I know most of it, except about this rocket ship, of course. And he goes to Clark goes to investigate the rocket. He goes to get closer to it. But as he gets next to the rocket, he suddenly becomes very sick, weak and dizzy, and he's about to pass out. And so Jonathan takes him home. We do see, again, it's, it's, it could be fairly easy to miss. There's just this green thing in the bottom corner of this panel that's attached to the side of this rocket. And it could be, you know, if you're not really paying attention, you could just mistake it for a weird way to color a splotch on the side of the rocket. It just, it looks like a green piece of dirt, frankly, with cobwebs coming off it or something. but. As they're driving away, we see a, a mysterious shadowy figure in a 
coat and a hat watching them drive away. And no idea who that is. They don't tell us at all in this issue. I'm assuming we will learn who that is later. Well, Jonathan gets Clark home. And as they they pull up, Martha comes out on the porch and she says, you told him? And Jonathan says, I told him. And Clark says, he told me. And that just makes me laugh. I don't know why. It's just very funny. You told him? I told him. He told me. Very funny for some reason. Just makes me makes me laugh. But it's at this moment, they go into the house. Martha's very worried that Clark is going to hate them for keeping this secret. And Clark assures her that, that he could never hate them. You know, they're, they're his parents. It doesn't matter where he came from. They raised him. They are his parents. But it's at that moment, well, it's, you know, the, the ride home and thinking everything over and his powers and how he was using them to win at a football game. And he mentions that they have told him a number of times that he should never use his special abilities to make himself better than other people, which in turn makes them feel useless. And that's exactly what was happening there on the football field. Those other players were angry because they felt useless. It's pretty goddamn useless. And so he decides at that point that he's going to go out into the world. He's going to leave Smallville and he's going to seek out, quote, people and places that need somebody who can do the things I can do, but I have to do it in secret. The world mustn't ever know it's me. It must always seem like good luck or nature. And then he leaves. And I'll admit that the first time I read this, I guess I just wasn't paying attention because granted, we know that, well, the football game was the last game of the year. Football is a winter sport, right? So the school year isn't over. And it almost appears if if you're reading this fast that he decides at that moment, I'm going to go out into the world because then he leaves the house. And then we go to the next chapter, which is seven years later. So I know that the first time I read this, I was like, so what? Is he just not going to finish school? He's just leaving? But he's actually saying that he's going to head out tomorrow, but there's somebody he's, he has to go see first, and that's why he's leaving. But still, unless Smallville ends their school year with a football game, it's just there's still school left. But again, comics, Comics. we're just going to assume that the Smallville around that area, their football season ends on the last day of school. Otherwise, otherwise, yeah, he's leaving school to go do this. So that's the end of that chapter. We get to chapter two, the exposure. It's now seven years later. Martha is sitting at the kitchen table and she's clipping out articles from newspapers. Jonathan is just getting up for the morning and we learn that Martha has kept a scrapbook over these last seven years of various happenings throughout the world that seem as if, again, good luck or nature saved a town or saved a person or, or helped people. Some of these headlines are floodwaters diverted, town saved as hillside dams river, bridge holds to last minute, collapse waits for workers to get clear, driver saved as vessel refloats. Child saved from mountain fall reports flying angel caught him as he fell. So these aren't like reports of a mysterious man who cannot be identified, who is going around saving people. These are, again, what seems to be good luck or nature diverting disaster. And Martha knows that it's actually Clark out there doing good. And so she's been collecting these articles. Jonathan worries, what if some burglar broke in here and found the scrapbook? What would he make of it, Martha? 
and she tells him to freaking chill. Chill, Winston. First of all, things like that don't happen in small towns like this. And if somebody did find the scrapbook, they're just going to think they're just going to think that she's just some weird lady who's obsessed with disasters or disasters that didn't quite happen. They're not just going to automatically assume, oh, their son must be an alien who has superpowers. So Jonathan doesn't come off as uh, the sharpest tool in the shed there. But he picks up the newspaper and he immediately goes, oh, looks like we got another article for your scrapbook. And he turns it around. Mysterious Superman saves space plane. And you can see a picture. There's two photographs on the front page of the Smallville Post of a man flying away. Uh, he's very blurry, so you can't make out who he is. But they both kind of realize, ah, people are going to know now. But then they hear a creaking from above coming from Clark's room. And they, they go up. I don't know what this is that Jonathan is holding. Actually, now that I'm really looking at it, it must, it must be an axe handle. He, he's, you know, an axe handle without the, without the axe head or whatever you want to call it on it. There's nothing like a nice piece of hickory. But he runs up to Clark's room with this axe handle ready to kick some butt. But he finds Clark in there. Clark's sitting in a chair in his room in the dark. And I really don't understand the, the idea behind the way this has been. I don't know if this is an inking thing or if this is how John Byrne penciled it and thus it was inked this way or, but you can't see Clark's eyes. He, he's sitting there in the dark. His eyes are in shadow and he looks creepy. If, if there was no text, if I was just looking at these without any word balloons, I would assume that they heard something from upstairs. Jonathan runs up, opens the door. And there's some dude sitting there in, in, in the room, and he's about to kill everybody in the house. That's what it looks like to me. But it's Clark, and all he says to his dad is, they wanted a piece of me, Pa. They all wanted a piece of me. And then he tells the story. He's been living in Metropolis for the past three years. They were celebrating their 250th anniversary of the, of the city. And they had big events planned and whatnot. And one of them was for a experimental space plane called the constitution. It was going to land at Metropolis airport. That's apparently a really big deal. And the whole city turned out to watch it happen, but a small plane, a civilian craft somehow, as Clark puts it, slipped through the security cordon and it slams into one of the wings on this space plane. So they're both going down and they're fused together at this point. The, the small aircraft is fused with the space plane's wing. And so now they're both going down. Clark is in the middle of the crowd and he realizes he has to do something. And there's no way he's going to be able to sneak off in time to figure out a way to help them with nobody seeing them. So he literally from the middle of the crowd, just flies up and he grabs the plane and he lands it and he's about to take off. He's like, all right, I've done my deed. He's about to walk away. But out of the plane comes Lois Lane. Hold it right there, buster. And she comes over to figure out what the flip is going on because she was in the space plane. She's a reporter. She was along for the ride to get, the sto to get a story. And one of the astronauts that are on the plane, when, when it stops falling, when it writes itself, one of the astronauts can see from the belly camera that there's a man underneath the, the space plane. 
I know it's supposed to be a space shuttle, but it doesn't look like the space shuttle and they call it a space plane. So that's what I'm going to call it. But Lois runs out to, to talk to this dude that can fly and can carry a space plane and immediately their eyes meet and you can almost hear dream weaver I believe you can get me through the night something words i don't know the words to the song but you know some romantic song playing as the, as their eyes lock and a connection is made immediately and clark just freaking falls in love love at first sight for old clarky boy probably not for lois i don't know But before she can really ask him any questions, suddenly they are both just mobbed by a crowd of people. And Clark is telling his parents, they were all over me like wild animals, like maggots, clawing, pulling, screaming at me. And it was all demands. Everybody had something they wanted me to do, to say, to sell. Superman! Superman! Wait, 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 where are you going? What the hell with him? And so Clark took off. And he says he went to a mountaintop in Tibet and sat and shook with outrage and fear. Says they'd taken everything you've ever taught me and ripped it apart. I know I still have to use my powers to help people who really need me, but now they're going to be looking for me, expecting me, and I just don't know how to deal with it. And that's when Jonathan, who has just finished lighting his pipe, so here comes the pun, he pipes up, ha ha! I think I do. And that's the end of that chapter. And then we get to the epilogue, which is called The Superhero. And we learn here in what is four pages that the entire concept behind Superman was created just among Clark and his two parents. Martha sewed the costume together. Jonathan and Clark sat down and designed the costume and the, the S-shield. And then Martha put it all together and she, she tells him as he's putting the suit on, and I'm going to talk about that in a second, because I don't know why I never noticed it the first few times I've read this, but uh, it, for some reason, really became apparent to me as I was reading this, but I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Hold on. Martha points out as he's pulling the suit on that it fits nice and snug and that she started noticing when he was only 12 years old, that cloth right up against his skin, never seemed to tear or get dirty. It was only anything that was loose-fitting. And then she says, besides, it shows off your muscles. And Clark goes, ma. And then as he's pulling on his boots, Jonathan's like, gotta admit you were right about the boots, ma. They add a nice swashbuckler look. And then they put on the cape, which Martha's worried about because it's not skin tight and it will probably tear. And Clark says, Not to worry, Ma, the whole thing works just fine. It's got exactly the symbolic look I wanted. So from now on, whenever there are people who need my very special kind of help, it won't be a job for plain, ordinary Clark Kent. Turn the page, very last page, splash page, Superman flying away from the house. It'll be a job for Superman. And that's how the issue ends. Now, let me back up a moment because there were a couple things I wanted to point out here in this epilogue. First, John Byrne gives us two panels to explain how people can see Superman and see Clark Kent 
and not understand that they're the same people. And what they do is Clark slicks his hair back. He puts on an old pair of Jonathan's spectacles. And Jonathan says, all he needs to do is stoop a tad. And he looks to be a whole different man. And so long as he's careful never to let on that he has two separate identities, he'll be able to move freely like ordinary folks. And Clark even calls it, he says, uh, it's lucky I didn't get a chance to tell anyone my name after I saved the shuttle. Now with a few minor alterations, I can have a private place where no one will ever think to look for me. A fortress of solitude, so to speak. And so Superman will look like Clark Kent used to look, except for now he's got a spit curl, as they call it. And then Clark Kent, the new look of Clark Kent will be a hair slicked back with glasses and he stoops a bit and he's got an aw shucks kind of attitude. And that's why nobody believes there's no way that guy could be Superman. What Kent wears, the glasses, the business suit, that's the costume. That's the costume Superman wears to blend in with us. But the main thing I wanted to point out here is that Clark strips off his clothes and puts on the costume in front of his parents. And I find that to be kind of weird. I mean, he doesn't get naked. I'm assuming he's wearing some underpants. And I'm sure there are families that are fine walking around in their underwear in front of each other. My family was never quite like that. So maybe I'm a bit of a prude that way. I don't know. I just find it kind of weird that he strips down to his underpants and puts on his costume as his parents are just sitting there in the room with him. I just, I don't know, found that weird. But that's the issue. I rather enjoyed it this time around again. Uh, I don't know how many times I've read the Man of Steel series, but I've read it a number of times. I continually throughout the years, I sit down and say, all right, I'm going to start this John Byrne Superman run again. And gosh darn it, I'm going to finish it this time. And then I never do. So I've started it six, seven, eight, 12, 300 times. I don't know. Hopefully I will at least get as far as finishing the John Byrne issues in this podcast. I mean, that's, that's the goal. I want to keep, go I'm going to keep going obviously, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Anyway, that's all I got for this episode. I hope you stick with me. We're going to keep going as far as we can, as long as we can. And maybe together we'll find out how far that is. Bye. Superman or Else is a Stephen or Else production in association with the Superman Super Show. Questions and comments can be directed to the Superman Super Show at gmail.com. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at my Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Stephen R. Orr. And in return, I'm going to do my very best to get you and your fellow patrons episodes just like this one before anyone else. I also encourage you to rate the show wherever available and share this podcast with a friend. Superman is published by DC Comics and was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. You're listening to... I'm your host. My name is Steven, and I want to thank you. Yeah, you. I'm talking to you right there, standing there with your hands in your pockets. Well, you got one hand in your pocket and the other one's holding a cigarette. <laughs> well, I certainly hope this little incident hasn't put you off flying, miss. Statistically speaking, of course, it's still the safest way to travel. <laughs>